Hello, this is Mary Kelly Polka, the editor of the Florida Times Union and Jacksonville.com. This is the Page One Podcast. I'm filling in today for Mark Woods, and our guest is Tessa Duvall, enterprise reporter with the Florida Times Union, here to talk about her latest project, When Kids Kill. Hello, Tessa. Hey, Mary Kelly. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. I know you're excited about this project almost being done. Excited, stressed, nervous, all the feelings. But you're really close now. So close. <laughs> okay. So tell us a little bit about the overview of what your project is about, and then we'll get into some of the details. Right. So for the last few years at the Times Union, I've been covering juvenile life without parole, the resentencing efforts that are underway throughout the circuit in Duval, but also Nassau and Clay counties. And as I've covered those hearings over the years, what I really learned about was the backstories of the the kids who were given these life sentences for largely homicide offenses, so for, for taking part in a crime that ended someone's life. And they just started to feel so similar. It's like every time I'd go to a resentencing hearing, I mean, these kids had, you know, they had um, learning challenges. They had never gotten proper mental health or medical care. Their families were really dysfunctional. Um, you know, they were just falling through the cracks in a lot of different ways. And so, I set out to do this project, When Kids Kill, in an effort to better understand you know, the kids who end up in that situation. Because what I had never really understood and or seen myself until I started covering these resentencing hearings was the depth of the trauma and the levels of dysfunction that these kids had to live through. And so this project sets out to really take a, a deep dive at that issue. And it's not just life without parole cases, but a lot of them are. And so what the story has done for the last over a year and a half now, I've actually been um, writing with a lot of individuals who are in prison for these types of crimes, um, trying to talk to them, or I should say, talking to them about their childhoods, about their families, about what it was like in school, how they started getting involved in crime and guns and all these different things. And what I really learned, there are kind of four big takeaways that I'm sure we'll get into. So trauma is almost always prevalent in their lives. Their families um, are either very dysfunctional or not equipped to support the child. Um, They live in environments where violence and crime are very normal. And then finally, um, you know, the influence of peers and how school can connect or disconnect them from peers as well as like sports and activities. So those really, those four kind of overarching themes played a role and, and, and almost the lives of almost everyone that I talked to. So they just volunteer that these were the issues. You didn't set out with this is what you thought they were. They, You found that common thread in their responses? Absolutely. So to, to do this, the way that I reported the story was I basically got a spreadsheet from the Department of Corrections and it's like, hey, these are all the kids from Duval County who were juveniles when they went to prison. And so filtering it from there, it came up with about 113 people who met my criteria so murder manslaughter a violent offense um were a kid you know was a kid from duval county and from there i basically drafted this letter that said hi i'm a reporter you don't know me but i'm interested in learning about your life about your childhood i want to understand you i'm not trying to do this from a place of judging you but from understanding you know why you're in the situation that you're in because a lot of kids just like you are also in prison and what i found is is 
the folks I wrote to, I wrote to over 100, and I heard back from 57 at first. And so, you know, some folks have dropped off along the way, but people were were really interested in sharing their stories. And, you know, everyone's unique, and so some folks had more perspective on maybe why they were the way that they were when they were a child. Um, But no, no one said, well, here are the four things you need to know about me, right? Like they just, again, like covering those resentencing hearings, the themes, they were just hard to miss. You know, most of these kids um, that I talked to have co-defendants or older peers or someone who was with them at the time of their crime. I mean, many of them, without even much prompting, just started to tell me about the dysfunction in their families and how, um, you know, maybe their mom was a good mom and did everything she could, but she worked three jobs, you know, so she's out of the house 70 hours a week. There's not a lot of supervision there. So, I mean, there's just, there were just these things that were just unavoidable. You would hear these stories, I would hear these stories over and over and over again, and they just kind of slap you in the face, how evident the patterns are. So let's back up one minute before we get into some of their stories. Um, tell me a little bit about the overall problem and how Duval County compares to the rest of the state and even how we look today compared to previous years as far as juveniles being involved in these types of crimes. That's a great question. So first of all, these numbers are all really small. Um, I mean, that's a good thing, right? Like we don't want a ton of kids from our, our county in this situation. So um I think this year so far there have only been two kids arrested in connection with a murder or manslaughter. Last year there were six. So because it's a small number, you kind of have these huge swings and percentages. And so what I did was really look at um, when I used kind of most more recent data, I used 10 years. And so using that 10-year standard, we have the second most kids in the state who have been arrested for murder or manslaughter after only Miami-Dade. But you have to consider our population differences. Miami-Dade has almost three times the amount of kids that we have in Duval County, and yet only twice the murders. So that tells you that our rate is much, much higher than other metro parts of Florida. So do we have the highest rate for those larger metro areas? Yes, and I, and I say metro areas specifically because when you get into really sparse counties, you know, a one-off incident can can totally skew everything. So we're really sure. just looking at, you know, the Browards, the Palm Beaches, Miami, uh, Dade, um, Pinellas, Hillsborough, Duval. You know that that larger set of counties. Okay, so we knew this was a problem in our area, and we might be a little bit of an outlier as far as the numbers over all mm-hmm. of those years. Uh, did some of your reporting help to explain to you why, what it was about Jacksonville in this area that might be leading to some of those numbers? One big thing that comes to mind with, with what makes us so different, and there, there are many, but we have so many more violent crimes that involve guns in Duval County. So um, I, I don't have the numbers offhand, but our, we have more gun crimes, again, than any other county except for Miami-Dade, but again, when you look at rate, it's through the roof. Um, So guns and accessibility to guns are a big deal. And this is not like a Second Amendment gun debate. This is a people are leaving their their guns in unlocked cars, which is something that JSO really harps on because this is, you know, I hear from kids directly. This is where they get their guns. They steal them and then they sell them among each other for I mean, nothing, like next to nothing. And so guns are a huge part of it. Um, I also think that access to mental health care is a huge part of it. Um, Jacksonville is a sprawling, 
you know, we are the largest uh, city in the in the U.S. by landmass. And so um, if the resources aren't in your community and your family doesn't have a car or um, there's not a counselor in your school, you know, there are any number of reasons that you might not be able to access the support that you need to kind of be a happy, healthy, well-adjusted person. Because that's that's really like one of the key things here, right? Is like the kids who get in trouble have grown up with dysfunction and deprivation and trauma, and then they're they're not getting any help for the things that they're enduring. And so having someone who can help them navigate those feelings and those reactions and that stress is really, really huge to mitigating future risk. Okay. So it might help people to understand some of these issues, those four main things that you looked at. If you help, if you tell them today a little bit about the two gentlemen that you talked to in prison. Um, so you talk, let's start with Marcus, okay. if you would. And, and he helps to explain two of the bigger issues. Well, tell us a little bit about Marcus and, and what his background was that fit with this theme that you were finding. So Marcus Wilson is a young man who um, is in prison in Daytona right now. He's from Jacksonville. And he's serving, I believe, a 20-year sentence for a murder that he was arrested in connection with. He, his co-defendant, was the gunman, who was also a teenager, who I think he was 18 at the time. Um, and so I wrote to Marcus, and Marcus is one of those individuals who was so appreciative of someone like reaching out and having an interest. Because that's another thing. That's part of the reason that I think I've heard from so many folks is like, no one has ever really said, hey, let me understand you. Um, which I think has helped me get so many responses. Like, hey, I'm here to listen, and I want to tell people about you and your experiences. That goes a long way. And so Marcus, his first letter back to me is just, well, you know, let me tell you about my parents, tell you about my siblings, and first I lived here, and then I lived here, and then I lived here. And, you know, you just start to, I mean, he was just like an open book. And, you know, the important part was after talking to his mom and talking to his sister and looking at court records, you know, and, and you know, kind of doing backgrounding on everybody, it's like it all checked out. Um, so this kid never lived anywhere growing up longer than one or two years. And as his sister put it, everywhere they lived was the hood. Like nowhere was ever safe or comfortable. Um, Marcus says and his mom says that he has a learning disability and um, anger issues and some mental health challenges um, and he never really got medication his family didn't believe in counseling so um, that's especially relevant because he was with his father when his father was shot and then um, that moment in which his dad was shot was the last time he saw him before his father went to prison his dad's been in and out of prison his mom had a crack addiction that lasted for more than a decade and so Marcus and his sister really had to fend for themselves from a very young age. Um, and his mom was very matter of fact when we talked about this. She said, look, like I had my addiction. I was nowhere to be found. He would go and he would borrow a lawnmower from a neighbor, try to make money because I wasn't providing for him. Um, so that is like the backdrop in which he started to get in trouble. I mean, he he got jumped after school in middle school one day and his mom told him, well, you got to do what you got to do to protect yourself. And so he took a knife to school and, and used it. Um, so he had been sent to juvenile programs. He had been sent a sister as soon as she turned 18, put him in Job Corps. Um, but he found out he's going to be a teen dad. And so he wanted to come back for the birth of his child. So, I mean, just, you know, he had, there were these moments where things started to go well. But for one reason or another, the good things in his life just really never lasted. And 
I mean, it. you hear about, I heard about how sad his childhood was and then just was able to confirm detail after detail. And it. you begin to wonder how could he have turned out to be anything but in prison, you know, where he is today because he just didn't, He not only did he not have, you know, a caring, stable adult in his life. He didn't even have access to like electricity in some of the places that he lived. Um, it all really begins to make sense when you see the the whole picture. It's you know, trauma isn't always just one thing that happens to a person. It's one thing after another, after another, and after another to the point that it becomes normal, and you have to desensitize to it because it's just too painful to feel everything. Sure. So obviously, a lot of times people will say, you know, why do I care? And what you mention is his mom and what she was like when he was growing up. But what we see is this was somewhat of a cycle, right? That that she experienced some similar issues when she was a child. Tell me a little bit about that because you went into some of that with her as well. Yeah. um, She said that her story belonged on the Oprah show. That was kind of how she talked about all the crazy things that she had been through. I mean, similar to Marcus, she had, you know, um, some abuse in her childhood. Um, she was in foster care. She was a teen mom. She lost the baby. Um, she was abused by her boyfriend who also abused her children. He got her addicted to drugs. I mean, she had been evicted a couple of times, never really had a career. Um, and you're, you're really able to see like these things just start in childhood. And so, um, like there's a couple of things that means. So first of all, she didn't know how to be a good parent because she had never seen it. She had never experienced it. She'd uh-huh. never been on the receiving end of of a loving parent-child relationship. But also that means that she doesn't have a support system. And so with a lot of folks, like grandma watches the kids, grandma can, you know, help make snacks after school, you know, things like that. But when you're when you're not connected to your family, you don't have that network that you can depend on. And so um Marcus really had no extended family. It was really him and his sister for a lot of the time. His sister who is basically a year older than him. Right. So obviously, if there was no intervention for Marcus and someone like Marcus, then we have to question if there are similar lack of intervention methods out there for children who are growing up today. Not that everyone's going to end up in Marcus's uh, situation, but this is the concern, right? That someone doesn't have what they're going to need from the adults in their lives. And so they're going to have difficulty as they move on and grow up. Right. So one thing I hear when I talk, I've told people that, you know, I'm working on a story about juvenile homicide. They're like, oh, it's totally the parents' fault. And that is accurate to an extent, but it's a really gross oversimplification of the problem. Because like I said, if you've never had a healthy parent-child relationship on the child side, you're not going to know how to be a good parent unless there is an intervention for the family. So we can't realistically just accept that families will all of a sudden be better, be more functional, be, you know, whatever it is that people that make more money, have better jobs, go to better schools, move somewhere safer. Like these things are just not plausible for many people um, with family situations similar to Marcus. And, and, kids don't have agency right like they can't they can't you know assess the situation and say wow my neighborhood is very unsafe and my school is not a high performer i'm going to relocate myself like children can't do that they are kids and so if families are unable then 
something has to give. Like there has to be something because this this notion of just do better that's never going to happen. There has to be help. There has to be resources. There has to be something that enables the family to do better. Because we as a community know there's a problem. And the question in our others helping to intervene is the community helping. Right. City and resources. So let's go to the other um, the other two big issues that you saw. And so let's do that with talking a little bit about Aaron. Yeah. So Aaron is um, pretty different than Marcus. Their, their stories are... are um, kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. So, um, you know, Aaron didn't have a perfect childhood, but I think a lot of us would find it a lot more relatable than anything that Marcus had to go through. Um, so Aaron Wright largely grew up in the Palm Beach area. Um, his parents split and um, his dad stayed in Palm Beach. His mom moved up to Jacksonville because she was actually worried about uh, West Palm Beach not being very safe for her five kids anymore. And so Marcus kind of back and excuse me, Aaron kind of bounced back and forth um, between the two for a little bit and finally settled in Jacksonville when he was 16. And he got to Jacksonville and his mom was at the time that he got in trouble was working two jobs. So she was working as a correctional officer at a prison in Georgia and she was also working in the healthcare industry on her, quote, days off. So um, she was doing everything she could to provide for her children as a single mom, you know, moved somewhere where she didn't really have a large network. She knew people in Jacksonville, but but not, um, you know, not the way that they did in Palm Beach. And, you know, she really, she was like, if I call my kids, they better answer Aaron always did that. If the, if the friends are going to hang out, they're going to come over to my house. I'm going to know them. I'm going to know about their families. I'm going to keep an eye on them. Um, so she really was a very involved parent as much as she could be, given that she was also working 60 hours a week. Um, and so, you know, Aaron didn't have to feed himself. You know, he didn't have to have a sibling, you know, put him in job court like he was his needs were well taken care of um the thing for him was when they moved to the arlington area he met certain friends and that's where kind of the excitement began so because he has very strict parents he moved to jacksonville and met these friends and was like i am gonna go to parties now i'm gonna get i'm gonna have fun i've never been allowed to have this kind of fun before and so that's really kind of what he fell into and um, eventually, that fun became, let's rob that guy. Let's go rob someone tonight. Let's rob, you know, like they, that just became what was available to them. You know, they would, like Aaron, for example, had a job. He worked at Sonic. He loved it because he got to work with a bunch of girls. He got tips. And for him, like that was a good deal. But then he'd get off work at 11 and be like, there's still time to rob people. And like, did you ever think about removing yourself to that situation is what I asked. I'm like, could you, could it have been an option? Like, can you like go hang out at home, listen to music, watch TV, whatever? He's like, no, like it's like, no, that was just wasn't an option to him. Like my friends are doing that. Like I'm going to go with them. Okay. That's what I'm going to do. And so, um, it really for Aaron, um, his friends were a big role in the situation that he ended up in as well as, as, as where he was living because right, like the friends who wanted to do that, um, were, were people he was close to. Um, 
it was something that, you know, guns were something they were able to get their hands on very easily. And so kind of all the right factors, you know, a mother who was absent by proxy of, you know, trying to doing the best, trying to do the best that she could, you know, friends who had the desire to get into trouble collectively, they really had nothing better to do with their time. Um, all those factors kind of came together for him to be one of three teenagers who, um, was arrested for a, a kidnapping and, and murder charge back in um, 2005. And so he's got a 35-year sentence right now. Again, he was not the gunman, but he was a participant, and um, he's he's paying for that now. So you talk about a lack of things to do, and he was at that time living in Arlington, but throughout our community, uh, there are a mix of, of resources that people can use, but there seem to be some areas where there might not be as many available to people within walking distance or convenience to people right after school. Um, Did you look a little at that issue? Oh, absolutely. So there are differences in what's available to children based on where they go to school. So it probably comes as no surprise to anyone that, you know, the kids at the magnet school, so at Douglas Anderson, at Paxson, at Stanton, you know, these prestigious magnet schools in Jacksonville have the kids who are are most involved in extracurriculars, after-school activities. And then what you really see... Um, is a disparity in either participation or access or both, um, depending on, you know, where a kid goes to school. Like among the neighborhood schools, there are more participants in, you know, at the beaches and South Side than there are like Northwest Jackson, West Side. Um, And I'm still kind of going back and forth with the district to to, um, really narrow down, is this an access or a participation issue? But there are disparities. It is a fact that there are more kids at the beaches and Southside who are in activities than in other parts of Jacksonville. And so um, if you your school doesn't offer you anything to do, and I, and I say school because school is a point of contact that most children have with some kind of, you know, system. Um, so without that, you know, without... Um, programming for older teenagers this is something that's kind of been a a hot topic in jacksonville because most of the summer camp and after school dollars are spent on elementary and middle school kids and it's harder to design programming for for teenagers you know that's when they start to have really divergent interests that's when things stop being cool you know like there's just so many factors that go into um getting a teenager to actually want to participate in something um so but yes, there are there are parts of Jacksonville. I drove around earlier this week, and it was after school was out, and I went to three different parks in Northwest Jacks, and there's just no kids there. Like there's just it, they were just empty city blocks basically, and there could be any number of reasons, right? Like their families don't want them to, or maybe they're into something else. You know, like there's just. But you know, I live in the part of town where I live, like. I can never drive past a park and and see it empty because there's always families with kids. And so there really is this issue of like occupying a child's time because they will find a way to occupy it themselves, perhaps with destructive and less than desirable outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're going to be bringing people a lot of information. You've been working on this for a while. Yeah. As we discussed. (laughs) And um, what do you hope they take away from this? Really, my goal for all of this reporting is just getting people to think about the big picture. So, so much when we talk about crime and punishment and criminal justice, we think about um, 
action reaction right like a crime was committed and then the person has to be caught and punished and that's kind of like the way we think about it like someone was wronged and someone has to pay for it but what i hope this encourages people to do is think more critically um because like i said happy healthy well-adjusted children don't just go around killing people that doesn't happen like there there had to have been multiple failures in a child's life to get to that point and to me that reflects a great need to understand the issue because you can't talk about solutions until you really understand why it's happening and so for me the best people to tell me why are not elected they're not um they don't have you know phd or md you know with their name um they're the people who lived it and you know no one's ever really asked them not not at least the young people that i've spoken to and i mean some of them some of them their crimes were committed this decade some were committed decades ago but the the things they share their experiences haven't changed and what they wish they had hasn't really changed um and so understanding why why did a kid feel like they needed a gun why did a kid have to be in a situation where they had to provide for themselves why did no one notice that this kid was was acting out like all of these children there were there were points where adults or someone could have and should have intervened and you know we just don't keep having children who have all these bad things all the traumatic things happen to them and not have the consequences and the consequence doesn't always have to be that they murder um, take part in a murder or they kill someone but we know that the more trauma and the more that they go through there is a greater likelihood of, of involvement in the criminal justice system so by heading this off you know we're not just like saving dollars in the system but we're also you know we're preventing victims as well um so this is more of a, a, a encouraging people to think proactively rather than reactively about the issue of Um, juvenile homicide and youth crime in general really okay so now you did this project with some assistance with a um, from a grant and that actually started with a little bit i mean i think you traveled to california as part of this is that not part tell us a little bit about that yeah so i was so excited last year um, to be selected as a national fellow for the university of southern california's annenberg school of journalism um they have a national health journalism fellowship and so the fellowship um, takes a very broad look at at what health can mean and so for me um a lot of people look at crime from a public health perspective um you know violence kills and hurts a lot of people in our city um and it's usually also hurt people who are committing those crimes and so mental health being such a big component of it i was really fortunate to um get the grant that would help make this reporting process because or make this reporting possible because this process has been like we've talked about lengthy and it's been involved and there have been you know there are costs associated with with records with going and doing prison interviews with sending hundreds of letters and so having um assistance helps make projects like this possible for a newsroom of our size absolutely and i don't think people often understand how expensive it is to do high quality journalism like this and so we are very grateful yes uh, for your fellowship all right i am mary kelly polka editor of the florida times union uh, thank you tessa duvall whose project will uh, be in the florida times union in the next week 
and uh, on Jacksonville.com forever. So <laughs> head there to read it. And thank you again, Tessa. Thank you.